Hi, you're listening to the Amaze Research Podcast. I'm Fergus Murray. I'm Sonny Hallett. And we're talking to Berenger Degas. Yes. Hi, I'm Berenger Degas. I'm from France, from Lyon. I moved to Edinburgh two years ago to do my PhD. Mm-hmm. I'm, and yes, I'm researching bilingualism in autism here. Mm-hmm. And that's pretty much it about me. Well, could you give us a, a quick summary of your research? Of course. So, well, as I said, I'm doing bilingualism uh, on perspective-taking in neurotypical and autistic adults. That's Mm. my research. Perspective-taking, in case you don't know. So it's a process that is part of a big family of thinking mechanisms called Mm. social cognition. Mm. Basically, it's all the the things we do when we interact with other people. And perspective-taking, it is when we take the perspective of someone else so when we try and see the world through their eyes, mm-hmm. when we try and put ourselves in their, in their shoes. And there's many different forms of perspective taking. It can be about what the other person sees or thinks or feels. Apparently there is a sort of positive reinforcing influence of bilingualism on the development of perspective taking. Mm-hmm. Um, apparently bilingual people are better at this than our monolingual people. But we don't really know how it works, so that's one part of my study. Because, well, perspective-taking, it's many different things. Bilingualism, it's many different things. Um, It's shaped by the age of acquisition, the proficiency, all of that. So one part of my study is to disentangle this thing, try and see this effect of bilingualism Uh, Does it exist in all the forms of perspective-taking or just some of them? And if there is an effect, what is the the key feature of bilingualism? What is the thing about bilingualism that drives the effect? Is it the age of acquisition? Something else. So that's one side uh, with my neurotypical sample. The second part of my study, uh, it's to kind of solve the same question in autism because... As you probably know, uh, many autistic people report um, having really struggling with perspective taking in real life, in real context. So, and this can have negative consequences for the quality of the social interactions, the uh, the easiness to create a uh, relationship with friends or colleagues, things mm. like that. So, it's important to try and find a way to to help uh, people develop this. And what I thought, well, if bilingualism helps the development of this skill in your typical people, maybe it does the same thing for autistic people. So if I find the same influence, maybe we could use language learning as a sort of tool to develop this skill in a nicer way, because it's always fun to learn languages and maybe actually it can be useful as well. So that's the second part of my study. Interesting. Um, A lot of autistic people talk about sort of neurotypical social interaction as being like a second language to Mm -hmm. begin with. Um, And I've noticed that many of us seem fascinated with language in general. I don't know if that's something that comes up in your work particularly. Yes, Mm -hmm. and that's actually really interesting because for neurotypical people, well, bilingualism, it's, it's hard it's complicated. So for families, for bilingual families with an autistic child, 
well, the families in themselves and the practitioners otherwise usually advise the families to drop bilingualism, just keep the majority language, huh. and that's it. While actually, m when my first study was to, because for neurotypical people, bilingualism and autism cannot go together. Hmm. While, well, autistic bilingual people exist. <laughs> so my first study was to just ask them online, well, tell me. What's your story? Well, how did you end up being bilingual? Because apparently, um, for neurotypical people, this cannot be. So tell me. And many people said that they just love learning languages. So why not learning languages? And um, indeed, actually, many people said that interacting with neurotypical people was a second language in itself. And actually, they found that learning a language helped them with this, even in their first language, because when you learn a second language, you are explicitly taught about all of these social things that you have to do that are associated yes, right. with the culture of this yeah. language. And many people said that actually they found themselves using these when interacting in their first language. So approaching this new culture associated with the new language helped them approaching than your typical culture in their first language as well. Hmm. I was I was going to ask actually if um, you noticed that there was a distinction that people made between the sort of non-verbal interactions in the second language versus the verbal interactions. Did people sort of talk about that at all? Um, well, I didn't ask any explicit question about that. Really, my the questions were basically, hey, as a bilingual person, how do you think autism? shaped your experience as a bilingual person and the other way around as well. So I didn't prime them towards anything. Some people did uh, mention the non-verbal communication. Some people said that actually in their second language it was easier because um, it was easier because it's fine if you make a mistake in all the non-verbal behavior mm. of communication. When you make mistakes with pe people speaking the second language, they do not blame you for that because they just take, well, you're just a foreigner and that's fine. Um, so actually, many people said that they were much more comfortable with all of that and they were more comfortable trying things, possibly failing, possibly succeeding, and yeah, they were just more at ease with all of these. I don't know if that answers your question. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Okay. Um, so you talked about how you did a sort of online survey mm -hmm. to get ideas from autistic people mm -hmm. before launching on your current research projects. Yeah. Um, have you involved autistic people in the design or direction of your work beyond that? Uh, well, sadly no, because mm -hmm. I'm just a PhD student and um, as a student we don't have that much freedom mm -hmm. to actually design. I mean, I designed my entire study, but... In the end, I, I didn't have freedom to involve uh, the community in that, and I'm quite upset about that. So with the survey, it was my way of trying to get some, some feedback. Like, does it matter what I do? Are you interested in what I do? Uh, and, but, well, luckily, uh, Sue um, has autistic consultants, and she talks about all the projects with them, so um, it's 
it's the feedback that we have at the moment. Um, another thing is that I'm really, really, really happy to be working with Sue because she's teaching us this way of working, of constantly, uh, as much as we can, interact uh, with the community and with autistic people. And that's a great way of learning research sure. because I know that in other labs I wouldn't get this type of education. And I'm really, really grateful for that. So my goal is to keep on having this when I can finally uh, involve uh, autistic consultants. I want to be able to do that. That was um, Sue Fletcher Watson, who was featured in our last podcast episode. (laughs) How do you see your research benefiting autistic people? Well, I think it can help first, well, families. Uh, the bilingual families uh, with autistic children who currently have no idea if they should keep it or not, or they, they really don't know. Um, there's very little research in the field of bilingualism in autism. Oddly enough, it's quite niche. Uh, so first thing would be to, of course, help the families make an informed decision. Um, but also if, what well, a positive effect is found on some cognitive processes or even just like no effect whatsoever. It could also be used to inform the education system that because some countries are actually now finally quite good at uh, providing a very mainstream education but still I will I mean in the UK it's fine because the main language is English so kids study English they learn English but in other European countries like Italy, for example, uh, Italy is very quite on uh, including autistic kids in normal schools, but mm. they do not like, push them to study languages. Huh. Would you ever tell um, any child in a non-English speaking country to not learn English? No. It's like we're giving you the same opportunities as everybody, but not equ- not entirely. Uh, oh, interesting. So, if we find that there is some sort of motivation and that it's good it, it helps people to be bilingual in that case we could try and inform the education system that yeah you can mm. let them study languages if they want to study languages um, why not so it's also good I think for that um, and in the end for for the autistic community in itself well if people want to study languages go ahead do you study languages? Why not? Um, so, yeah, that's it. Um, am I right in understanding that sort of historically, I think I read in, in America as well, the advice had been, if you're in a bilingual household, choose one. And that has had an impact on, for example, the Hispanic community as well mm. and, uh, and other communities that are at the intersections of two cultures having to choose one of their cultures. Mm-hmm. Indeed, uh, because, well, generally, even for the neurotypical children, bilingualism is still seen as such an overload, while it is not. Uh, so for autistic children, indeed, the child is already going to struggle to communicate. Don't put another language on, on him. Poor, poor child. Uh, so it happened actually quite often that the uh, autistic child was the only monolingual person in the family. Mm. <laughs> so... It had, I mean, it came from, they didn't want to do anything bad, but uh, 
it had loads of problems regarding, well, the ability to relate to the rest of the family, the ability to feel like part of the family, but also to interact with my well, grandparents, for example, who stayed in the other country. Mm. They just couldn't even talk to them. So then it had also consequences on the ability of the person to just build their own identity as, well, they were not quite actually like the rest of the family. So even more stigma, uh, even more difficulties to just relate in to, to people in, in your own family. Mm. So it had really bad consequences. And now many, many of these people say that they are quite sad that they haven't been able to learn the language and now they can't do it anymore. They can't learn it. Um, so it's like an entire bridge of connection with the family that is broken. What drew you to doing research on autistic people? Autism in France is decades behind. And in my training, I never, never uh, studied uh, anything related to autism at all because I did neuroscience and biology before. And it's during my gap year, I was trying to find ideas for a PhD. And one day I was watching TV and I saw this interview of this autistic, highly multilingual guy who was releasing a new book. And the interview was like five minutes. The next day I got the book, I read it in one day. And by the end, I was like, that's what I want to do. That's it. It was an epiphany in my life. It was, I, I never read another book that changed my life that mm. much. And yeah, I was hooked. And that's the only thing that I had in mind from then. I just wanted to do autism research, nothing else. And I actually applied to another PhD elsewhere on bilingualism in um, Alzheimer. That I, and I got the funding for that one and not for here. And I refused the funded position to come here and do a self-funded PhD just because I just couldn't see myself doing anything else. So, I, and I don't know why I felt that, um, but that's what happened. Can you tell us what the book is? Yes, it is. Um, that one was uh, Voyage en Autistan by Joseph Chauvinek. Uh, he's French. Uh, his books are translated in many different languages. So this one was, the translation is a um, um, journey to Autisten, a country of autistic people. Uh, so he talks about... Uh, his travels because he travelled a lot and actually he developed languages what well, language quite late uh, in in childhood and then ended up learning like tens tens of languages, really obscure languages as well. So he decided to just travel and meet people speaking this language, so he travels by himself to the Middle East and countries where people do not go uh, at the moment. And he goes there and he was just talking about that, about travelling and learning languages as an autistic guy who, when he was a child, no one expected anything from him. And now he's amazing. Uh, so he has loads of books and he's great. How would you like to see autism research change in the future? Well, I'm quite new in the world of autism research, really. I'm just two years in, so I still have a lot, a lot to learn. But... I think I'd like it to go into the direction of focusing on what people can do and building up on that. It's true, it's important to identify where are the difficulties but also where are the strengths and how can we 
build on these strengths to try and solve the, the difficulties. Because I feel like for most of the autism research lives, it's been on identifying all the things that were not okay. While as for learning languages, for example, hmm. for some things, autistic people are just so much better than neurotypical people and it's important to recognize that and value that. Also, well, for my field in particular, for example, I'm trying to go towards more uh, the individual, the person. So, for example, for language learning, some participants said that the environment and the way of learning the language had been key in their ability to learn it. So, um, going more into the strength of the person, what is the best way for this person, for this child or this adult or this adolescent to achieve what he wants to do. It can be language learning or something else, learning anything really, but understanding for each person how to build on the strength to overcome the difficulties. Well, thank you very much. Thank you. <laughs>